right, Charisse, what are we working with here today? You know, it's it's kind of cyclical in a way because remember your what leader French press? From, yeah, that leader French press I had from our old office days. This looks like toilet water, by the way. I'm sorry. Okay, it's been a moment since I didn't have to make since we haven't had the drip machine. This. I don't think I've made French press since three years ago. It. It tastes uh, like warm water with like an infusion of coffee. Or another way of looking at it is... It doesn't taste like coffee. Someone made one cup of coffee, but they needed to ration it between 10 people. And they diluted it. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty but much then it. Added a, right. But then added a little bit of food coloring. You are responsible for the next pot. I'll probably be overzealous. I'll, pro- I'll probably put in like 10 scoops. Yeah. Just to overcompensate. See, I think I'll go the other way. I mean, even in... Back when I remember you were making French press, it was too strong. So, but, but why why did I have to buy the French press? The reason is I didn't just randomly go out and get one. What is kind of interesting is uh, I think we had uh, so it's an American coffee maker, right? That needs to plug in, and the the voltage needs to be converted, and then the converter. Has a fuse, and then I think Elphick blew the fuse. Oh, really? But I mean, it's a fuse. Was it really him? It's like it's like seventy cents. Man, whatever. Okay, but see, the problem is not that it costs money; it's that no one has been bothered to go and replace the thing, which is why we've all been buying coffee. I'm gonna put ourselves on blast. This is not good to admit, but it's also because Nathan bought that canned coffee, and we were drinking that a lot. I wasn't. You weren't, but... I was buying a lot of McDonald's coffee. I was putting myself on blast now. All right, let's move on. So I had a friend recently tell me, hey, I thought you announced that you were going to grad school on the podcast, but I've been listening to the podcast and I'm up to date and I didn't hear the announcement. And he was like, did you ever say it? And I said, I thought I did, but maybe Eugene edited me out. You never said it. I never said it? You never said it. Okay, so this is the official announcement. Like five months later. It has not been five months. Three months. It feels like it, but it's been two months. Yeah. Two months later. It's not So basically, all right, let's just cut to the chase. Charisse is moving to... I'm moving to London in September for 15 months. For what program? I'm going to Goldsmiths, which is a University of London, like one of those schools, um, it's a new cross and the program is called Design Expanded Practice. And I'm going, most people ask this shortly after. They're like, oh, that's so cool. They're like, oh, why are you studying? I'm going because I want to teach at a university level. So I'm going to go get my master's. Are you excited for me? I'm excited. Thank you. I had to force you into that one. I have to say, like, just as a side, like, I think it's really important for... How do I put this? Like, obviously, in this relationship between Sharice and I, I'm technically her boss, but <laughs> in this, uh, but we're also equals as podcast co-hosts. But to that point, I think it's really important that you're always sort of supportive people to go on and pursue their passions. I think everyone, I always say this, and it's not my original thought, but when people come through your doors, it's really on borrowed time. You're not yeah. really, you can't really be under the expectation will stay with you forever. But this also doesn't mean Sharice is leaving. Yeah. In a sort yeah, of like sorry. working capacity. Right. Sorry. That was unclear. But, yeah. So to that point, basically you need to support people. <laughs> this is just a massive clusterfuck now. It's all over the place. But 
yeah. So support people. Let them pursue their passions. But I think sink it, your talents into them so they never leave you. They never want to leave. Right. Okay. So yeah, Sharice is still involved. Right. And it doesn't mean that this podcast is discontinuing. That'd be so sad. I would be so sad if that's what we were announcing. That's not it. Basically, we're low-key supporting Sharice so she can infiltrate London's creative scene and... Yeah. And take <laughs> it from there. If you are in Europe or London, give me a shout. Yeah. Anywhere in that. I'm, I'm feeling extra peppy today. World. And it's funny because. Because you're on three hours of sleep. Is that why you're feeling I'm extra peppy? I'm still drunk. I'm probably still <laughs> drunk. And it's funny because this is a byproduct of that, uh, the other podcast we did about partying. So I've received some positive feedback about the follow up section, which is basically this sort of introductory part of the podcast where people enjoy it when we talk and banter, which it's, I'm feeling extra banter-y today. Okay. So our good friends at Yardbird, Lindsay and Matt, Elliot, Yosh, I can't list them all. Like I'll probably go through the whole restaurant. Anyways, they released a new book with Biden. Mm-hmm. Really dope. Well, did book. you find out that that's how you say it? I'm gonna go with it. Okay. If someone be- if someone knows that it's not pronounced Biden, P H A I D O N. Then please let me know. Okay. Anyways, dope book. Yeah, um, chicken and charcoal available yes. on Amazon. Yeah, so they had a little party for it, and it was free flow alcohol and free flow food. Skewers, so it was, uh, everything. Oh. It was like skewers, uh, liver mousse pate, um, corn balls, katsu sandos. And you went and you said, and I asked you before you were going. I was like, Eugene, how late are you going to be there? Because we're recording tomorrow morning. And you were like, oh, I'm going to go home early. Dude, that did not happen. So what happened was the reason I had to go home and I had two calls, one starting at 9 p.m., 11, and then 12.30. So I basically took three calls at the restaurant outside. You're kidding me. Yeah. It's just really bad too because... Did you apologize to each person on the other line? Oh, hey, I'm so mute. sorry. I was on I was mute. Standing. I wasn't that important. Okay. But okay. To, you were sitting in on three I calls. Had to, I had to chime in on some of them. But to that point also... What was also interesting is that when you have AirPods in, you just look mad antisocial because if you look at someone across the room, they're not, they just like, they're standing there, <laughs> sitting there. Like there's no like string for people to contextualize. Oh, he's probably on a call. Right. Right. Yeah, some people come over and like, I don't know how you like, it's just, you feel you, like you a gotta, dick. What, what do you do? Cause if you're on the phone and someone doesn't see the phone, you like point at the phone, right? If you got AirPods in, what do you do? You just feel like a dick. You're like, <laughs> I'm so important that I'm taking this call outside a restaurant. When they're having a party. <sighs> Anyways. So you compensated by staying extra late and drinking more. Well, it was like not by choice. Like every time you come around, oh, your drink's empty. Here's another one. Yeah. Your bread's really good about that. Yeah. No, oh, I was going to mention, you know how you asked me about Castro yesterday? Yes. The, so Castro is a podcast app. Yes. New, open source, right? And you said you were going to give it a try. And then actually like... Two hours after that conversation, happened to see it come up on my timeline. And they were, um, the people who were talking about it were saying, Oh, it's a great thing that Castro exists because Overcast can't be like the only one trying to revolutionize the podcast player market. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to say. Well, that's all. That's there's way more to that. Oh my God. I thought you, I feel like you stopped extra short. That's all I got because okay. I didn't actually download it. So I, I don't it. have like... No, go to Twitter have, right now. Okay. Go to Twitter right now and then go to Marco 
Arment? Yeah, go to his timeline. Marco Arment is the founder of Overcast. He's like the voice of reason within the tech world, I'd say. Uh, a voice of reason. Let me rephrase that. So there's <laughs> the primary. <laughs> so look at the part where he replies because someone kind of, kind of took a little dig at him. Well, sorry, one second. Internet's being really slow. Is it this one? The actually, I actually want and need Castro. Yes. Yeah, that's what I saw. So Marco Arment said, actually want and need Castro and other podcast players to succeed. My goal of keeping podcasting open requires diversity among player apps. So many apps all built on open podcasting that producers can't ignore or control them all. Overcast can't do it alone. Yes. So that was probably the the tweet you saw. Yeah, I think that is the tweet I saw. I think I retweeted that. So I don't know maybe. if I saw it from you or someone doesn't else matter. or several people because yeah, we're in matter. this world. Um, yeah, that's what I saw. And he was responding to a guy who wasn't making a, he wasn't making. I think he was low key trying to, trying to diss him, like sneak diss. It was a little bit of a dig. It was just like, oh, Castro's giving you a run for your money, Marco. Kind of that kind of thing. But it was a complimentary to both parties, honestly. Honestly, I think it's good. Yeah. I'm curious when you have these types of apps, if financial support of them is binary. Like, for example, if you have three dollars to spend, are you going to spend three dollars on Castro or three dollars on Overcast, or will you do both? Right. It doesn't make sense to do both. Beyond, I'm a fan of podcasting. Would I do both? I would probably do both. Um, I might do both. Three bucks is I, like not that expensive, but if it was like fifteen bucks, obviously that's a different story. I mean, it's also not subscri- subscription based, so I'm okay with making like a one time. But is it subscription based? It can be, I think. I would be willing to give money to try them, but I'm not going to keep like two subscriptions for essentially the same service. I'm I'm really bad for that. Like if I believe in something and I just, you know, I'll here, here's some money because I feel like I'm supporting the ecosystem, but there is a limit. You it know, there's a, true. there's like, Oh, if it's more than X dollars, then probably not. Yeah. You're not going to support like five good podcast players. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, just wanted to say it's a good thing. Wow. This is a new record. It's like 11 minutes in. It's not a record. And then you edit it and then it becomes like seven minutes, you know? Do you want to start today? Sure, I'll start today. Should we kick things off? Hers is a heavy one. No, actually it's... Well, it is, but it isn't. Well, it's heavier for me because I feel like there's... Though I did read at least one book on this subject. Yeah. So I shouldn't underestimate myself. All right. My topic this week is The History of Venture Capital by Logic Magazine. Uh, The article itself... Uh, stems from the magazine, which I think, I'm not sure actually how often they publish. It's on the site, I think, but it's anyways. It's issue based. Yeah. It's so issue more based. traditional. Yeah. So they do a lot of writing around technology and how it interfaces with culture, et cetera. What drew me into this was kind of this nice, well-written introductory into what is venture capital, uh, and also sort of the history behind it and where it's going. I think VCs is something you hear a lot, especially since all of the products we use on a day-to-day basis in a technological landscape basically are venture-backed, right? Yeah. To achieve that level of scale. So, I mean, yeah. I'm looking around right now. Google, for example, everything Google, like we're using Google Drive right now. Google Docs, obviously venture-backed. So I have a few parts of the article that I've sort of isolated and, and pulled out. Venture capital needs scale to survive. It needs to fund companies that have the potential to become very big in order to compensate for losses or break even returns elsewhere in a portfolio. And also, like, what's, what's interesting about, 
venture capital is there's a reason it exists. Yeah. It exists because certain companies just struggle to get traditional funding. Like they can't get it from banks because they're just too risky. Venture capitalists, you're assuming the risk of something not working out and you're generally okay with it. Uh, well, I would. You have other systems in place to make it okay if one thing doesn't work out. Exactly. So it's not it's, okay if everything doesn't work out. Correct. Correct. So in exchange for assuming greater risk, venture firms expect higher returns. Its model tolerates losses, sometimes obscene ones, for a chance at grabbing an entire market or customer mindshare first. Yeah. So generally, 6% of investments generate about 60% of venture capital's total returns, according to Horsley Bridge Partners, a firm that has invested in many well-known venture funds. Uh, so in general, if you're taking VC money, you're expecting growth anywhere between 2 to 4x per year. So... Is that sort of a hard, fast rule? No. I mean, more is better. Less is not ideal. But there's a general sort of belief that once you take on VC money, the whole game changes, right? You're kind of basically pouring rocket fuel on to an existing project in hopes of accelerating it, growing it very quickly, hopefully reaching a liquidity event like an exit so these guys can get their money back. So also, where does the money come from? This is something that honestly I was, you kind of know and it makes sense, but basically you're raising from LPs or limited partners and these are kind of your customers. Yeah, actually this is, to be straight up with you, this article is the first time that I read it in such clear terms that it, it the connections made a lot more sense. Like it was more transparent. Whereas I feel like the general understanding I have it's of jagged. VC is like, where did the money come from? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So I, I honestly, like, it's a pretty good article. Like, I think it's, you know, one thing to just sort of lament, oh, VCs are negative or they're bad. But it's also good to understand the place in which they come from. And also, you know, beyond the customers, uh, recently, there's been a lot of money being raised from family offices. So really rich people that are trying to make more money. So VCs are actually managing the money of other people. Yes. And they're trying to make the right decisions on how to increase that. There's also a pretty big part within the whole article that talks about the history of VCs. I'm actually going to And not, the history of Silicon Valley. Yeah. I'm not going to really touch on that because I think it's probably pretty yeah. boring if I read it's it. It's not really relevant to our conversation, I would guess. Yeah. But it is really interesting. Yeah. Worth reading. So the whole Silicon Valley venture model has become sort of this worldwide thing. China has committed about $50 billion in 2017. Silicon Valley still leads the way with about $84 billion. What has become a little bit challenging for VCs is that there are only a handful of really good projects. Yeah. Um, so it exerts a lot of downward pressure. Like it's everyone's trying to get in on the same deal. Yeah. Generally speaking. Um, also there can only be, there can only be the handful that actually take off to the scale that they're hoping for. Yeah. And also like you're just recognizing that there are only so many good projects. And I mean, you, you need it to, if you, if you have what you deem to be a really good bet, then you need to get in. Yeah. Right. You need that allocation. Um, what's also interesting at the end, and it could probably be an article on its own is just the rise of ICOs. Yeah. And that's probably its own, not even just like one article that's like a magazine, so, a book. On its yeah. Own. Like, so ICOs, if you're not familiar, it, it's sort of spun off from the world. It's, if you're not familiar with ICOs, like initial coin offerings, it's spun off from the crypto world. What is interesting to me is that, I mean, overall, zoom out. I think the article, like you said, did a great job of just laying it out. 
like you don't have to really understand you know finance and all that stuff and like yeah. entrepreneurialism to like really kind of sink your teeth into it and understand it um and i just think it's interesting to understand like what role it plays and what industries are better suited towards these types of venture backed sort of uh, opportunities right um and then lastly i think that I would challenge a little bit what they said about ICOs because, oh, they're arguing that, yeah, it's unregulated, blah, blah, blah. But I think that the ICO market is definitely maturing very quickly. So, you know, let's say just as early as late last year, like you could raise a ton of money without a working product. Uh, I think those days are generally over. And I also think the overall size of the raises are definitely reducing. Mm. So what that means is that like, Dude, raising $250 million, like, I think those days are not over. It's going to become increasingly rare. People are going to laugh you out of the room, I think, these days. Like, no one needs to start a business with $250 million. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, people, the reality of what's necessary is more clear. I mean, there are companies that have raised over a billion dollars in in venture capital and are still sort of low-key, like Magic Leap, for example. Before I finish off on the ICO thing, what I think is also interesting is that there's interesting sort of mechanisms like reverse ICOs where you're an existing company and you're basically turning yourself into a tokenization project. Mm. So that, that kind of reduces the risk, right? Because like, Hey, I already have a customer base, a working product. Now I'm basically just slightly pivoting into a crypto company. Got it. Yeah. So incorporating it into your existing structure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole ton of legality around it that I am not going to speak about because I don't know it. Yeah, um, that's like, I can only just say, I can begin to understand yeah. what you're getting at. So another thing that is good about ICOs is that the majority of venture capital is concentrated in one part of the world. Yeah, Silicon right? Valley. And also Bay, you need connections. There's been a lot of sort of negative sentiment around Silicon Valley for being predominantly white and male. Mm-hmm. So that means if you're not within that sort of club, then it's mm-hmm. hard to get funding. Yeah, yeah. So, I've heard that sentiment. My question, which I have tabled, we're going to get back to, um, but to respond about ICOs, which I do not know very much about at all, but I can understand that something that does disrupt the norm of VCs is good, right? Like so long as it's a bit of a shakeup to how they're doing things that they might start reconsidering what they're doing. So I think ultimately it'll be interesting because the reason why I actually chose this and, you know, this is kind of tipping into a pretty long sort of intro is that we've been talking about this as of the last, actually it was just sort of like ironic within the last 24 hours. You're just talking about like, Hey, if a magazine or a media company was to raise money, which we know there's a lot of publications that have done that, whether it's Buzzfeed the outline just did it, et cetera. What would that look like for Macon? What would the right partner be? And, you know, what would, what would we be able to do with that? I think I kind of surprised you when I was like, Hey, if Macon is ranked on a scale of zero to a hundred, where do I personally see Macon? And I was like, Oh, it's like a 20 or 25 out of a hundred. And you're like, yo, that's pretty low, but it's not really because the output is bad. It's that what is the possibility? Right. 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 And then my response. That was in our, with the resources we currently have in terms of humans and time and money is that we can only reach 2025. We can't reach the hundred that you see possible Yeah, with our existing resources, which is why we started talking about 
species. And I mean, a lot of it also comes down to like, when is the right moment to do that as well? Because like, I think that ultimately where VC is helpful is that when you've proven a business model out and you're basically needing to accelerate it. So there are different stages. There's like, hey, you know what? Your pre-seed, seed, blah, 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 like series A, like, I'm not going to get into that because I honestly don't really know like what differentiates a pre-seed from a seed. And I think that's also like a shifting definition. Different phases require different things. And like, I couldn't really tell you where making it in terms of that phase. Like I would still say it's in the discovery phase mm. of proving out like a business model, mm-hmm. right? Like I think that between the studio and the publication, there's clarity there as like how they make money. It's just that, you know, you go on to making right now, there's no ads, there's not really any sort of brand involvement. Which it's very not obvious to an outsider how we're afloat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure we get you get asked that a lot. You've you've, you've mentioned this before. Yeah, and so have you. Um, okay, can I? I want to get back to my question about VCs in general, which I think is related to the conversation about VCs in relation to making. Does the system force companies to? reach a scale that is unnatural. Yes, because the scale is something you probably couldn't reach through organic growth. Is it unnatural for what the product is? Did you see what I mean? Okay. Like no, not I'm... every company as it is, like as its goal is intended to be a Facebook. Correct. But then also the one thing to consider is like a lot of these products are like network effects, right? So like a Facebook, for example, is better when more people use it. So like if that's inherently the type of product, then you need to blow it up. Blow it up in a positive sense. What if the thing is a niche thing? Then I don't think VC is the right thing. It's not the right sort of... um, What if it's... What if what it wants to be is a medium-sized company? Like what I'm saying is not every company should aspire to this global reach, right? I I agree. But I, I think that if there's just like several nuances in the definition of what is like VC there. I'm not going to go and break down like, oh, there's like different cat. I'm how to put it. There's different categories of investors that have different types of returns in mind. Right. 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 I guess, I guess when I think about it, I always think about VCs wanting this, you know, massive blow up, right? Like a thing that is undiscovered becomes something on a ginormous global scale that they didn't, that they didn't know was necessarily going to happen. Yeah. And I feel like, well, most companies aren't going to be like that. So what happens to all the companies that they invest in that are not that? Do you don't get the VC's time? Like, do you not? I mean, do you yeah, know what I mean? I, like, I think, no, no, definitely. There's different types of projects that require different funding. So for example, I'm making this up. Let's say, let's say that you're a company that can never exist outside of the Northwest of the United States, right? It doesn't mean that you, you don't deserve funding. It's just that you're going to seek a different type of funding from a different type of investor. But those investors exist as well that are, that are happy. But I wouldn't say they're VCs. Got it. Yeah. Got it. If it is a VC, then they are looking for something that will become much bigger. So yeah. then if they invest if they invest in a smaller company 
sorry, all they invest in are probably like ideas, right? Like that's what they're in the business of, something yeah. that's undervalued that becomes extremely valuable. Or they're just waiting for something to hit a certain critical mass and then they come in. So like if it becomes obvious that the thing is not going to reach that mass, then don't doesn't that company become neglected in a way? From VCs, yeah. Yeah. There isn't a shortage of money in the world. So I it's would just say. that like... It's just that the distribution of the money this is... This is what going. I was talking about yesterday when I was saying like there are certain expectations that you can't escape by yeah. taking VC money. To kind of keep it within the discussion of media, like media companies I don't think are very well suited towards the typical sort of VC-backed raises. Yeah. Like they still need money to operate, don't get me wrong. But I think that there has to be a clear expectation on what you're getting from it. I know. I mean, obviously it'd be great if media companies could get that kind of injection of funds. But like, like logic says, you have to deliver large returns so that the venture investor can deliver even larger returns to the limited partners. And media is just not built to deliver those returns. Exactly. Because it definitely contorts the product in a yeah. way. Yeah. That's just what I well, wanted to I, I'm curious, like when you look at something like BuzzFeed, which started off as listicles, et cetera, do you think they've done enough to establish themselves as a credible media outlet? I think they have done a lot to establish themselves credibly in terms of the BuzzFeed news side, but they can't shed those listicles because that's part of their business model. Correct. So it's like, the chicken and egg. Had they not sought out this sort of VC injection, could they have achieved that credibility on the news side? Right. So right. just a thing to consider. Well, I think also sometimes when we're considering, and maybe this more comes from us, I don't know about general people, not in media, but I feel like we are a bit of media snobs sometimes. Like you think of BuzzFeed and you write it off as the listicle company instead of giving credit to the news side. But we're, all, we're also brand people. Yeah. So you could be a snob, but you also be a brand person. I guess I should also preface that I've never raised VC money. So <laughs> this is also something that I'm sure there's things that like, oh, Eugene, you're so stupid. Or like Eugene doesn't really understand it. I'm sure there's things that like, right. I haven't really been in a room with a VC, but I think I've spoken with a lot of people that have. Mm. And I kind of understand it from that perspective. Well, my reading on this subject prior to this conversation was Reset by Ellen Powell, yeah. which definitely cast VC in a not good light. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, it's a true aspect of VC. Like that book, um, you know, Ellen Powell. Yeah, yeah. The... Ex-Reddit. Um, yeah, ex-Reddit, ex-Kleiner Perkins, uh, sued her boss. Um, it's just... it. It talks mainly about the negative aspects. So maybe that's also yeah. like where my negative perception yeah. comes from. What also kind of interests me within the whole world of fundraising, you recognize that businesses need the ability to raise money to grow and to like validate and to explore and to experiment. And if you don't have access to that, then you're really confined. Yeah. Like you're basically just running something that keeps your head above water. Mm -hmm. And that's something that know across my mind it's like hey you know what you're running an independent media company how do you ensure that you're you're not just keeping your head above water like where are you going to be next year and the year after yeah i mean we joked about just finding a rich person to give us money lots of those people in hong kong we just gotta meet them yeah no but i know what you mean because like i also thought about Ian hotel 
Yeah. Which has, which fortunately, because of their background, has money to use to experiment, which is how I wound up at that talk about psychedelics. Cause it's like that series of talks about psychedelics did not earn anything. And the reason they could host it is because they have that hotel money behind them. On a personal level for you, what is the the balance or the intersection between the artistry and the ability to grow something? Well, I feel like in my personal work, I actually mostly do work that's just work. I don't like I don't think of my web design work as art, so I'm not precious about it. Like I don't I don't feel like, oh, I have to make this kind of value compromise to be designing this website. And it's not true to my values. So it's fine because it's just like how I make money. Um, but I, I do, I think when I think about that balance the most, I do think about making because I, I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't want to be told by someone else or some entity that's not you and Alex what we should be doing or I would just not that I immediately write that off but I am just more skeptical I mean the intentions change right when you're when you're soliciting money from investors part of their intention is to make money yeah of course of course which is not a bad thing it's just no, uh, what is the no. balance I mean I want to make money too I think it's just um I want to you would just have to be clear on what is this person's reasons or wanting me to make money. I would say in general, it's always touch and go. It's the sustainability of it. You know, we always have this conversation like dating back to, I'm sure a ton of dating back to, I don't know how many podcasts ago about sustainability versus sustainability towards a longer term goal versus what you need in the immediate. I mean, every time a magazine folds, I feel like I have this conversation again with you. And that's why I didn't pick the interview, interview magazine closing because I was just like, well, it's the same conversation. You know, how many different places can it go? For context, Interview Magazine announced um, Chapter 7 bankruptcy and owes a lot of money to people. Yeah. Oh. And there is, people have speculated, or not speculated, people have written kind of think pieces on, you know, Interview wasn't able to make a compromise between you know, valuing art and fashion and being sustainable, like what we're talking about. Yeah. What is interesting, I think you just need to have like a longer term vision. Like sometimes you need to 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 lose battles to win wars. Yeah, I'm so philosophical. That's really deep. Okay, my topic is Instagram confirms that the company is working on adding time tracking to the app and they have launched a notification that tells you when you are all caught up. Instagram launching these measures that are related to digital well-being are indicative of a greater trend right now in tech companies. Um, this month, Google revealed a series of different time management controls at their IO conference. They debuted this dashboard that shows you how much time you spend in different apps and you can set time limits for yourself related to the different apps. Google also um, have like different do not disturb modes and wind down modes. And the response has been positive. Like the consumer response has been really positive towards 
these additions to Android and people are hoping that Apple will kind of launch similar products for the iPhone. So this recent news about Instagram um, was revealed because there was this one curious person looking at code that hadn't been officially launched yet, like in the background, and it revealed a new kind of dashboard, like a new panel where you can see the total time you spent on the app, but it's unclear whether it's like total time in history, which is unlikely, or like that day or month or week. And then CEO Kevin Systrom confirmed it on Twitter and he says... Quote, it's true. We're building tools that will help the IG community know more about the time they spend on Instagram. Any time should be positive and intentional. Understanding how time online impacts people is important and it's the responsibility of all companies to be honest about this. We want to be part of the solution. I take that responsibility seriously. So my question for you is, should we as consumers be re- requiring this kind of parenting from tech companies as it pertains to products? Yes. Just totally yes. I think so. Do you not think that it shows an individual inability to self-discipline? The reason why I'm I'm so for it is that we're too fresh into the development of digital culture that we don't really know where it's going. So I think that if we were to be, let's say, 25 years into this whole experience and then we're still unable to kind of understand its impact on us as a culture and society, that's an issue. Mm. But not when we're so fresh into something. There's so much experimentation going on and just like kind of understanding how something impacts us that we don't really know. And also that I think there's different impacts on a cultural level, like Instagram usage between you and I will be different than Instagram usage towards like a 15 year old. Right. So like there's different things going on. So I think that until we fully understand, I don't really see it as an issue because there's a lot of these things too that are bubbling up. And I had this conversation with somebody. I was like saying, if you look at the way we've sort of looked at, I no, this is what came up. I thought this was like part of my drunken conversation at Yardbird. It was, discussing two things that are fundamentally lacking in terms of education and that's like financial literacy and just information processing. Mm. So I think that information processing is one thing that we don't fully understand both in regards to what comes in and sorting it. It is true because there have been studies done on what the effect of tech is on the person, but we still don't know as much as we do about like physical health, let's say, what technology is doing to us mentally and emotionally. And also those things are really hard to gauge. Like if you join Instagram, let's let's use this as an example. Let's say you're born today and you have an Instagram account basically your whole life. What does that look like when you pass away and what effect does social media play on your whole life? So that's what I'm kind of getting at. Like, Mm. why not build in guardrails until we fully know? I think it's a little heavy handed, but it is also the first we're seeing of these kind of time tracking measures. I assume that in the future, there are always options for people to turn off on and off different degrees. You know, how much you want to be disciplined via like none at all, right? Like you can establish how high the guardrails are for yourself. I think that everything that happened with Facebook, Cambridge Analytica just sort of scared people a little bit in terms of tech companies, which is fine. I think that ultimately it's going to be a blip on the radar that we need to address. And 
I don't think for a second that things were going to get worse after that. Like things almost had to go forward and go up. I guess it's not obvious, but I understand why companies would push something to an extreme and then realize that they need to scale back. It's always my pendulum example, right? Like you're kind of testing how far the pendulum can swing before needing to almost rip it back forcibly. The thing about this news that does make me happy, I guess, or I see it as positive is that whether or not, because I'm skeptical, right, of business intentions, whether or not businesses really care about mental health, right? Care about their consumers. Exactly. They have to because of their brand and their reputation. Also, I think because by doing this, people will see them favorably. I think you're, I think you're painting all people that, that work within the, the spectrum of technology as inherently negative. Well, no, what I'm saying is like, we don't even have to know. It doesn't matter what their actual intention in their heart is. So long as the practice is doing it. Yeah. Right. Like the intention might be, we will improve our brand's reputation and therefore, you know, our stock will go up. Yeah. But that's fine if what the practice looks like is to ensure digital well-being. I mean, I, yes, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but I, it's also like I shouldn't really care about, well, what does Kevin Systrom really care? You know, like this doesn't yeah. matter well, so I, long as he's doing it. There is a responsibility I think you and I recognize with these people that are kind of pulling the strings. Yeah, But you know what's kind of the funny thing? element of the you're all caught up thing is that it could have also been solved by giving back a chronological feed. What's interesting though is that to that point on Twitter, like it's semi-chronological, right? Yeah. And sometimes I get annoyed when I see a tweet I've already seen. Is it because someone's retweeting it? No, because I've just gotten to the end, but you don't know you're at the end. How do you, you've just forgotten? No, because you'll scroll and like, I've already, I've already seen this. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, I think that uh, maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is inducing anxiety. But for example, let's say, oh, you have, if you're going to create, oh, you're all caught up. Why not just like create some sort of like number? Oh, you have 15 more uh-huh. posts. I would like that. And I could just yes. choose like, honestly, whatever. Mark I mean, Hall the person read. you are. You would like that. <laughs> Users are different. See, and also apps are different. On Twitter, I don't have completionist anxiety. Well, I actually don't really have it on Instagram either. I don't feel like this need where I need to like... No, I don't either anymore. Read, no, actually I never read did. Read and see everything. But I would like to come uh, into a time and place where it's just like an inbox and I can just look at stuff. And then when I'm, uh, you know what? I don't really need this. Okay, see, but it's because your attitude towards it is like a thing to accomplish. Whether whereas other people on are like, this is where I'm just like spending time. But then it, it's interesting. I'm just hanging out here. Because if I, oh, this is probably the worst way of looking at things. But like, let's say there's a hundred things on my feed, and I know how I'm spending my time. Like, it makes me focus more on my time spent and like. Mm, you know what? This person I've been following since high school, like no value, get rid of them. Well, we didn't even talk about the mute future feature. Can I say that one time? Well, we also didn't talk about the mute feature. Man, Instagram is like rolling out a ton of updates. The mute feature is a funny indication of where we are in life. 
It's just so strange that you can follow your friends on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But if you don't actually want to see anything they say, you can mute them on all these places. But But you're still following the person. I feel it already happens though. Because through algorithms, right? Like if I'm not interacting with your content, then it'll naturally sort of remove itself. I just think it's ironic that society has been built where you can be friends with a person and never have to actually see anything they say or talk to them. Yeah. Oh, well. What is interesting to me is that before sort of the rise of social media, I'm curious if there were only a handful of ways to interact with people. Whereas now there are so many ways you can pick and choose what fits your style. If I want to DM you, if I want to call you, if I want to shoot you an email, there's so many methods that, you know, how you interact with people, how you create those relationships differs from person to person. So is it right or wrong? That is so true. Actually, I have never been on a dating app, but I'm going to use this as my example anyway. It's like, let's say you match with someone on Tinder or Coffee and Bagel, and then you get their number. So you take it to like iMessage or WhatsApp. And that's a different context for communication. Exactly. So, you know, even I, though it's like the same thing, you can message yeah. in those apps just as well. Yeah. And then you also recognize small little platform nuances like stickers or whatever. So that I think that part is interesting because you're basically saying like, oh, this is the way people interact with each other. This is like outlandish that we've gotten to this. I don't know. I don't know. I meant it's outlandish the mute thing. No, but it's more you the context just of follow people. Yeah, but I'm just saying like that's the type of relationship they're creating right now. Yes. So a new paradigm. Let's end it off on that big word. Paradigm? Yes. It's not a big word, buddy, but okay. <laughs> that's a good place to wrap things up. If you're interested in learning more about Macon and reading our stories, our focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. If you really like this podcast, Please do us a favor, share it with a friend. Podcast discovery is not that good. So your word of mouth is really helpful. Likewise, give us a rating on iTunes. Or actually, can you only... Yeah, I think you can only read on iTunes. God. What? You have to say your name. Oh, I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>